Subscribe on iTunes at Toddcast Podcast. This is Dr. Goldner. Hi, Dr. Goldner. Todd Hancock here in Vancouver. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us here. Absolutely. I actually talk to people in Canada a lot. I have a lot of patients there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Right now, my practice, uh, after the U.S., the second most patients I have is India and then Canada. Hmm. So as a a medical doctor, plant-based healer, author... Which eats up most of your time? I would imagine the medical doctor. Absolutely. Well, although my practice right now is primarily disease reversal. That's what I do full-time now is I work with people on reversing their illnesses using the right nutrition and lifestyle interventions. So I've strayed a bit from my original training, both doing genetic research and then as an MD, to really focus on empowering people to heal themselves. I'd read that, that you had a, a pretty heavy diagnosis when you were just 16 years old. Can you, can That's you, correct. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So far, far long ago before I was ever a doctor, <laughs> I was right. a patient. Yes. Yeah, so at 16 years old, I was diagnosed with a disease called lupus. And at the time, I was dealing with bad arthritis all throughout my body. Mm. I had rash on my face. I was getting migraines that were so bad, I'd be in bed vomiting for a week, uh, really, really feeling terribly sick. Finally, they figured out that I had lupus, and at the same time they figured out I had lupus, they told me I was also in stage four kidney failure. And if I didn't do very powerful interventions with medication, that I would probably end up either dead or on dialysis within six months. Wow. So it went from aches and pains and rashes to life and death very quickly. And uh, it was a very intense period of my life, to say the least. Uh, what they ended up doing is using an experimental treatment at the time, which was using chemotherapy, which you normally use for cancer, right? But the side effect of chemotherapy is that it suppresses your immune system, and it's why a lot of people with cancer end up dying from infections is because of that. Mm-hmm. And they thought, well, lupus is autoimmune. It's when your immune system is attacking your own body. So what if we use the side effect of chemotherapy to shut off the immune system and save the person? And so I was one of the first people to do that. Nowadays, when you know, they give people maybe a month or two of treatment, I had it for two years straight. Wow. So from 16 to 18 years old, I was on high-dose steroids and six other types of pills and getting IV chemotherapy once a month on top of that just to try to survive. And after two full years, finally, uh, my kidneys went into remission. It was not fully recovered. I still had protein loss in my urine. I was told I'd have that forever. I still had lupus. I mean, my blood test all showed I had lupus, but I was considered in remission, which for lupus just means you're not currently dying, you're stable. And I was able to maintain that with oral medication after that and stop the chemotherapy. But from 16 to 18, while other people were just kind of trying to figure out who was the cutest kid in their class, I was trying to figure out how to study for my exams in between chemotherapy uh, so that I could still graduate in the top 10 of my class and, and go to college because that wasn't an option growing up. <laughs> it was, you're going to graduate, you're going to live and do all these wonderful things with your life. This is just something you need to overcome. And I, I really appreciate my family so much for that, that they just never let the illness define me. It was just, you know, one other thing you got to do. You got to brush your teeth, you got to take your pills, and you got to study for your tests. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was, uh, but it was very intense. It was very intense. And I did. I graduated top of my class, I got a scholarship to Carnegie Mellon. And, uh, and continued living my life. And actually, the last chemotherapy I had was a week before I left for college. And so I, that was kind of a, how I lived my life was knowing, okay, I have this thing I have to deal with. I was told I could never have children. 
Uh, I knew that I would probably become disabled at some point because of the arthritis, but I figured, you know, nobody knows how long they have in this world, but I just, I happen to have the advantage that I know uh, that I've got a limited time here, so I just wanted to make it count. I wanted to do a lot of service, I wanted to make a difference, and I thought becoming a doctor would be the way to do that. So um, I took my pills, I learned how to make sure I got enough sleep and, and kept my stress low so that I could minimize how much painkillers I'd need for the arthritis, and, uh, and I did it. I, I did genetic research for years at Carnegie Mellon. I got in medical school. Uh, medical school did make me sick. You're supposed to avoid stress and get enough sleep, and medical school is not the place to do that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I actually uh, started getting mini strokes in medical school, wow. uh, collapsed in one of the clinics. Um, thankfully, a mini stroke means that uh, while I did get blood clots going into my brain, uh, they were able to dissolve and not cause permanent damage. Uh, and that was kind of how I thought I was going to live my life was, okay, now I need to take injections every day to keep my blood thin, but I'm still alive. I'm still here. I'm still going to be a doctor. And, and I still was happy and grateful for my life. And that's how I thought I was going to do this. I figured even if I'm disabled, I can still practice medicine. You know, I can still, I can still do this. Uh, but then when I was in my intern year of medical school, or not medical school, I'm sorry, intern year of residency, I changed my diet, mostly because I, I met an amazing man who wanted to marry me and take care of me even though I was sick. And I changed my diet dramatically. And not only did I lose weight like I wanted to, but I also uh, completely reversed my disease where for the first time after 12 years being sick, my disease disappeared, my labs were normal, I had no arthritis, no aches and pains. And that was 15 years ago. Mm. And here I am today, still disease-free. I've had two beautiful children. Instead of being disabled, I was on the cover of a fitness magazine wow. <laughs> last year. I mean, it's, uh, life has turned. So now that's what I dedicate my life to, is helping people understand the power that their own cells have to fix themselves, that our cells are programmed to heal, that healing is literally in our DNA. We just need to provide the cells with the right nutrients, and they do the job for us. Right. So that's what I do now. I, I give away my protocols for free online. I do live Q&As for free for hours and hours every month, just trying to empower the public to get their health back. What an incredible story. With hindsight, of course, there's super positivity with your message, with your story. How did you take the news? It must have been crushing as a 16-year-old. You know, I think one of the benefits of being a 16-year-old is not truly being grounded and in touch. You know, like, I, I don't think I could understand truly the gravity. It didn't feel real to me. Mm. I, I didn't like it for sure. And there were moments where I cried, especially after chemo. I felt terrible after chemo. I'd be throwing up in my, you know, with a trash can next to my bed. And those, those were some hard days. But in general, it was not that hard for me to just refocus myself on my work and things I had to do. It was much harder on my family. Mm. Um, you know, I'm an only child, and my family, uh, my, my family are in immigrants. They were refugees from World War II. Um, my, a lot of my family was murdered in Auschwitz. So I grew up with the stories from my grandparents of what they had to survive. And so I still felt extremely grateful and lucky. Even with chemotherapy, my life was better than theirs was surviving the war. So I, I always just had this feeling that no matter what I was going through, I was still very lucky to have freedom in the life that I had. And my grandparents were that way, too. My grandmother used to always tell me what a lucky girl she was, even through her 90s. I'm a lucky girl. Mm. Most people went through the Holocaust don't say that. But no. she felt lucky because of all the love she had and the beautiful family she had. And so I learned very much from her how to focus on all the good and the beauty around me and not on the problems that I faced. Mm -hmm. And, and you, but although I got to say, my grandmother, the one that was so positive, 
I have it burned into my memory seeing her on her knees begging God to take her and save my life instead back when I was diagnosed. So uh-huh. it was, I very much learned how much my illness hurt my family. And I think that's part of why I worked so hard to not make it a big deal for myself. That, look, guys, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. I'm going to do this. I'm still going to succeed. And, and I didn't let it take me down because I knew that it would take them down too. Yeah. And you're, you're mentioning uh, symptom-free for 15 years now. Uh, what are you? That, what are you currently working on? What is it? Basically, just kind of whatever kind of rolls your way, or are you specifically niched to reversing something? So I originally was known for reversing lupus, right? Because that's my story. And and mm-hmm. when I wrote my book in 2016, when I wrote Goodbye Lupus, it was about my story, and then also the six steps to reversing autoimmune disease with supermarket foods or lupus at the time. And so I, I, that became a bestseller before it was even published. I, I just I did a pre-order on Amazon, mostly to give myself a deadline. I, you know, I just wanted to give myself a deadline, so I put it up there. Mm-hmm. And it became a bestseller, and nobody knew who the heck I was. It just did on its own because people were looking for it. Now, since then, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with people from all over the world, and now my practice is entirely online telemedicine because I spend so much time uh, talking to people in Europe and Asia and, you know, Australia and Canada and all, all over the world, people who are sick are contacting me. So my most recent book, Goodbye Autoimmune Disease, which was last year, I published dozens and dozens and dozens of case studies people reversing many different illnesses with the same protocol, mobile sclerosis, scleroderma, Sjogren's, mixed connective tissue disease, heart failure, diabetes, psoriasis, uh, the list goes on and on. And what we've shown is that results are typical. This is normal, is that when you keep the body correctly, it fixes itself no matter what the person has. So while most people find me for autoimmune because that's what I'm known for, I've also helped uh, entire families overcome all different kinds of illnesses using the same principles, which is that, you know, there's certain nutrients your body uses for cellular repair and for proper immunity. And people who are healthy do it, they just don't get sick anymore. They stop getting the flu. They stop getting uh, all their allergies and other issues they used to have before. So that is what I do full time. I, I was medical director at a nonprofit in Long Beach, California, working with the homeless, which was really what I thought I was going to do with my life. I have this passion for helping vulnerable and the people that are ignored and you know was given to me by the family and so that's what I thought I would do but mm. uh, this kept pulling me more and more that what I really need to do is help all the millions of people suffering from diseases needlessly and the people who are losing loved ones from diseases they don't need to suffer from just because they don't know the right information right so yes, my practice is between seeing people through telemedicine and online, and mm-hmm. then I switch right into Q and A's. Like uh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to do a Q and A for an hour for the public international live, and then I'm going to go right into seeing patients as soon as I'm done. And that's kind of <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what I do now. Yeah, well, uh, and then I go into mommy mode. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, I was just going to segue into you know you've written the three bestsellers, which is amazing. Do you not like downtime? <laughs> What do you find is most challenging about sitting down and, and, and writing a book? Oh, goodness, finishing it. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, I, I, you know, I will come up with something that I need to share. I mean, even with Goodbye Lupus, um, my passion is really in helping people. I am an extrovert. I yeah, have a heart clearly. for people. I yeah. love sitting and talking to people all day long. I love it, love it, love it. Um, sitting and writing a book, I mean, my, my double major back at Carnegie Mellon was biology and creative writing. So I do have a passion for writing. But 
the inspiration for the book is easy. It's the final edits and going back and going back that drives me nuts. So it's usually the past few months before it's published that are, is the most stressful part of writing a book. Um, but I do it because I know that there are people who won't be able to see me, even though they don't have to buy a plane ticket because I do it online. You know, there's, there's limitations on what people can, can do or can afford. And so that's why I give away my protocol for free. I teach it through online classes that are, some of them are going on right now. Um, and then I wrote the books so that people can literally have all the information I teach in their pocket. And the only reason they would actually hire me would be that they need my personal help to figure out how to do it. You know, that they either need help with their self-sabotage or emotional eating, or they can't get the protocol right because, you know, food allergy, or they've got organs failing, and they need to make sure that they get my guidance to do it right because the clock is ticking. And I've helped mobile people get off the kidney transplant list by reversing lupus nephritis with nutrition rather than the years of chemotherapy that I had. So I do, um, the people that I see are sicker and sicker. I mean, I've had people come to me with 5% kidney function left, you know. Um, so it's a lot of people's last resort now. Um, I tell people that they have to eat a lot of vegetables, so I'm usually not their first choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. As a doctor, how concerned are you about the coronavirus? Oh, the coronavirus. Well, you know, I, I am concerned right now about how contagious it is because nobody has immunity. It's a new one. And on the one hand, I'm not too worried about myself or my, you know, my kids or anything like that because we have really strong immunity. And for people who are otherwise healthy, it's just going to be, if you get it, it'll be a flu. And for some people, just a mild flu. So for most people, probably 70% or more, it won't be a big deal. The problem is the vulnerable people in our society, the elderly, mm -hmm. the immune-compromised, people with chronic illness. Yeah, I just read something yesterday that the people most at risk are people with uh, illnesses like high blood pressure or heart disease. I'm like, okay, so that's everyone. Um, but, <laughs> right. um, I mean, that's the number one killer in, in America is heart disease. Heart disease yeah. So um, there are people who are vulnerable. So even with those of us that are going to not get that sick, we need to protect ourselves because if we get that virus, we could pass it to someone who's vulnerable. So right now I'm saying don't panic but protect. You know, I, I had to camp out. I've, I've never canceled an event. I will travel and I will teach happily. Uh, but I had an event coming up in Tucson in a couple of weeks, and I had to cancel my, uh, my trip. And actually, they, after I canceled, I ended up canceling the conference because it does not make sense now to get on a plane and to have hundreds of people gather in one spot when we've got this kind of virus. So I, I don't think people should panic, but I do think we need to be smart. We need to make sure we're doing heavy hand washing. We are uh, not going out into big public situations. You know, this is a time to not fly if you don't need to. Um, and just be careful. Um, but it's not that we need to panic. I don't think that, you know, we're going to have mass deaths. It's just going to be that uh, it's something that we need to be careful about until people have built up some immunity or maybe we get a vaccine or, or until it passes through because it's going to take a few months to run its cycle. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not just uh, conferences uh, canceling. South by Southwest canceled. A lot of bands that are touring. I know, so yeah. You know, in, into like, yeah. Italy and all that. Like, they're literally just straight up canceling their tours. Like, well, we're not going. Yeah, Coachella's on hold, and Coachella's Italy, hold, the entire yeah. country shut down. Right. The entire country shut down. Right. Yeah, it's not being handled well, unfortunately. And, you know, my husband was asking me about that yesterday. He said, what is it that with all the medical science we have, that nobody can stop a virus? And I said, because the virus is smarter than us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the virus, yeah. you're asymptomatic for five days. So that was long enough. For, for people to get out of China and travel across the country, sure. across the world, right? 
without anyone knowing there was something to worry about. So five days of no symptoms is a really good mechanism for spreading a virus. And so, yeah, the viruses are still smarter than us. <laughs> Dr. Goldner, I'd, I'd love to get outside of uh, health and uh, nutrition and everything else that you're known for, if that's cool with you. Uh, yeah, take I, me on a bridge. Where I, do you want to go? I would lo- I'd love to know, what was the music like in your house as a kid growing up? What are the bands that your parents were playing you? Music. Okay, so my father was really into things like opera. Uh, oh, wow. So he loves classical music and opera. And so when he was playing the music, I was listening to, um, you know, different kinds of classical music or opera, things like that at loud volume. Uh, he used to <laughs> try to embarrass me. If he had to give me a ride to school, he would play it really loud and open all the windows when nice. he had to drop me off in front of the school. You know, cruelty, cruelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mom, though, uh, she loves classic rock. So my mom was always pumping out classic rock. We were listening to the Eagles and the Doors and the Beatles and all that stuff. And then we would just sing along all the time. In fact, that was quality time with my mom is, hey, you want to go for a ride? Yeah. We'd go for a ride and we'd listen to music and we'd talk about the deepest things in our soul and cry together. And it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, um, so classic rock is probably has, is really where my heart is. And actually, I've taught it to my kids. My kids are 11 and 7, and my 11-year-old is a, plays electric guitar and absolutely loves rock and roll. My 7-year-old is a singer. Both of them, their favorite artist is Queen, and that uh, followed by Pink Floyd. Nice. So, yeah, I've kind of passed that on. I do, I do love the sound of while – I, while I can dance to EDM with the best of them, I love the sound of actual instruments. Yeah, and, uh, the and, and the, the classic. Yeah, yeah. yeah my, my kids are subjected to all the classic rock as well. What was your first concert that you attended? Pink Floyd Division Bell. Pink Floyd. Wow. What a bar to yeah. set. Yeah. And actually, it was with my dad. And <laughs> my dad had gotten tickets through his business at the time. And, uh, and I was so excited. And the, it was funny because the one song I really wanted to hear was to hear them sing The Wall. And, uh, mm-hmm. and my dad, you know, finally hit midnight and it was a full night. My dad was like, we gotta go. And right as we walked into the parking lot, we started singing it. And he let me sit in the parking lot and listen to it. Uh, and then got me my tie dye t-shirt, which I wore all the way through. Gosh, that, that, that t-shirt I wore until it had holes in it, uh, in my twenties. But the funniest part was the next day I did go to school, but I was a bit late. And when I handed them my note. Uh, the, the person that took my note said, um, next time you want to pretend you're sick in the morning, don't wear your concert t-shirt to school. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> love it. I love it. Um, when you find the time, because you're obviously super busy, what are you binge watching when you find time? Oh, goodness. So I usually only will watch one thing at a time because I have episode. I have enough time for like one episode of something right. uh, before I go to bed at night. And my husband and I have said something we do together. So we... Uh, goodness, we just finished uh, Hunters, The Hunters on uh, Amazon Prime, which was super intense. Do you know that one? No, I don't know it. What is it about? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so The Hunters is uh, it's with Al Pacino, and oh. it's on Amazon Prime, and it is a show, it's a series about after World War II, it's in the 70s, that, um, you know, a lot of the Jews immigrated to New York, including my family, but that also Nazis came and hid in New York as well, and these Jews that are Holocaust survivors discover the Nazis, like in their supermarkets and things like that, and they form Mm -hmm. a band of hunters to go out 
and kill the Nazis. Um, it's very intense. I mean, for me especially, uh, I just went on a recent trip to Poland and went to Auschwitz and saw where my family was killed. And so I actually was, it was very stressful to watch. But the acting was amazing. I mean, uh, Al Pacino turned into an old uh, Polish Jew. I mean, he, <laughs> I mean, the accent, everything, he became this, this little Jewish man. Hmm. Uh, it was absolutely, the acting is absolutely incredible. So we binge watch that. We love usually anything that's mostly science fiction related. Hmm. Uh, but that show, um, that really blew our minds. I mean, we just sat there with our mouths open for yeah. it. But it's one of those things where, you know, your heart's racing the whole time. Um, but the acting was unreal. Boy, he's he's one of the best. It, it doesn't matter what genre that he's doing. He's just amazing. Yes. This yeah. was the best I've ever seen him. I wow. forgot Al Pacino wow. was an Italian guy. He became, he, he the way his mannerisms and his accent, everything was perfect. And I grew up with, Incredible. you know, all of my grandma's friends were Holocaust survivors with Yiddish accents and the tattoos on their arms. And he became that. I mean, for me to get fooled, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. very good. And I also really like the fact that it's bringing the Holocaust to the modern day because I've read um, studies and polls nowadays that the millennials, many of them don't even know what the Holocaust was anymore. Right. And we can't forget the Things. No. So even though it's extremely painful to watch for me, um, the scenes from Auschwitz and the Holocaust that they show, it's important that we, we don't forget that that really did happen and bring that into the modern dialogue because there are versions of it still happening today in other places and we have to be aware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Sci-fi you were mentioning, Star Wars or Star Trek? I'm Star Trek. Star I'm Trek. a hardcore Trekkie. I do love Star Wars too though and we did get Disney uh, the, the, what's the Disney app? We have it right now. Well, for the Mandalorian, uh, and yeah. We watched, uh, the Mandalorian is amazing. Great. Love the Mandalorian. That was great. Um, but I do love Star Trek. I uh, My dad actually made me watch all of the original series as a kid on VHS tape. And then <laughs> yes. when The Next Generation came out, we watched it together. Yeah. Uh, and so I have, yeah. And, and my dad actually taught me a lot about the world through Star Trek. He, you know, he used to show me here, look at all these different races of people yeah. and aliens all working together. And they're not working for money. They're working because it's their passion and their purpose. And so, you know, he trained me a lot through TV and movies. Like Rocky was all about, like, having heart and pushing through pain to find your glory. And then Star Trek was about living your purpose and your passion. And so TV yeah. was a lot of my education. Uh, um, uh, and I did that with my kids. My kids love Star Trek. In fact, they also are definitely Trekkies over Star Wars. So, yeah, yeah. you know, some people might object to that training, but, you know. <laughs> Um, and amazing, like the thread that uh, for those shows to, you know, to your life, you're helping so many people. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, thank you. And and I do, a lot of what I learned from my family, not only did it help me survive, but it's what I teach my patients that, hey, you know, you need to embrace the things that make you happy, like music. Right? I mean, one of the most powerful things that my oh. grandmother taught me um, was she, so she, she just passed away a couple of years ago at 99. And she, she loved music, loved to dance. And one of the things she told me was when the war was over, they just, you know, they, all of the, the survivors were freed and they were just sent to a train station to go home. So here they are, this huddled mass of starving, beaten, abused people. You know, she said all of them had these swollen bellies like you see in the Ethiopians from starvation. Mm -hmm. Many of them were just barely alive. They're skeletons, right? And they're standing in this train station to go back to lunch where their family was, but they don't even know if they have family anymore. They don't even know who's alive, who's not. And they're standing in this train station, and everybody's just crumpled over, and somebody on the other part of the train station started playing music. 
And my grandmother said when she heard the music, she started dancing. And, and it just struck me, even as a child, I said, Grandma, how, how could you start dancing after two years of what you lived through? And she said, because Brooksy, then you hear music, you dance. <laughs> and, uh, and it's one of the most powerful things that anyone's ever told me. Mm. And it's what's helped me survive what I did and still be happy. And that's what I teach my patients is that you might not be able to control the things going on in your body or the things going on in your life. You know, some of the struggles we face are not ones that we would ever choose. But we can choose to dance when we hear the music. In fact, we have to look for the music so that we can dance and we can feel that happiness inside of us because that's what's going to help us take the actions that are necessary to get our health back. Incredible. I mean, music is so powerful. I'm involved with a a local uh, charity here in town called Music Heals. And it basically, they yeah. go to they'll go to hospitals and 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 talk to people that are literally on death's bed, you know. And music, there's something in the human mind where you, even if you don't remember your kid's name, you'll remember the lyrics to a song. Yeah, even when my grandmother was in her last days, what I would do is I would play her Polish folk music, yeah. and then her shoulders would start going up and down, and she would just <laughs> you know that she just. And the smile would hit her lips. I had to play yeah. it very loud at that point because the hearing was almost gone. But they've shown that even with people with Alzheimer's, right, that uh, right. they could be locked down and barely responsive, and then you play music and suddenly they kind of wake up oh, again and, and interact. Yeah. Isn't that incredible, yeah. hey? Incredible. It is. Yeah. Uh, so so sci-fi, you're a big sci-fi. Does that translate over to the superhero types then? Are you into the, the X-Men, Wonder Woman, Logan, Justice League, and all that? You got me. Oh, yeah. And again, superheroes. <laughs> nice. It's another thing that I teach my patients, right, is that, that, you know, all of us have a superhero inside of us, and we have to embrace that, and we have to feel our power, and our power is not in our diagnosis, but in what we decide to do with it and what we do with our lives, and we all have this inner superhero. So, yes, I have always loved superheroes. In fact, um, just between you and me, uh, one of the things I used to do when I was in medical school, so I had no television because I knew if I had a TV, I wouldn't do my 12 hours of reading I had to do a day. But one of my hobbies then became um, I wanted to make my own Halloween costume, so I made my own Wonder Woman costume by hand, and uh, it was awesome. Like People thought I had bought it from, from a, a store or something, yeah. but I kept the, uh, the wristbands. And so whenever I had a big exam, I would wear my Wonder Woman wristbands underneath my sweater uh, to, to remind myself of my power and feel like I could power through whatever the exam was. Oh, that is awesome. So I didn't wear the crown, though, the tiara. I did not no, wear the tiara. No, no, that stays at home. If you could have a superpower, which power would you want to have? Oh, goodness. You mean one that has to be superhuman? Yeah. Okay, because I always tell my kids we are all superheroes because we're saving lives with everything we teach and do. But mm-hmm. uh, if it had to be one that was a superhero, non-human power, it would definitely be flying. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in my dreams, I do fly. Really? <laughs> Why is yeah. that that some people can't remember dreams? Do you know? Because I, I, I literally can't remember 10% of it. Well, do you usually remember it when you first wake up? Not really, kind of, but not really. Yeah, so part of it is that we don't store it in the place where we usually put our memories unless we uh, actually speak about it or write about it afterwards. And no one's really clear on why that is, most likely because they're just to help us process our feelings and not meant to become permanent memories. Right. But, um, yeah, so I know the only dreams I remember are ones that I talked about immediately afterwards and I made them real. Uh But I do have distinct memories of 
uh, that feeling of flying. Yeah. It's more like floating, but uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite things in my dreams. Hmm. I don't think I've ever dreamed about flying. Oh my goodness. I don't think I have. I know, right? Like what? So what power do you have then? What's your, what's oh, your superpower? I mean, I kind of agree with you on the flight would be pretty amazing, but it would have to be bullet speed. It would have to be, it would be Superman. But the one that I always say is teleportation where you could just boom. Instantly. That would be the second one. Yeah. I mean, how cool would yeah. that be just to like, you know, be able to, te- like I could teleport to you right now. That would be, that, oh, would, yeah. that cool. would be, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Because then you wouldn't have to worry about coronavirus. Someone sneezes, boom, you're out of there. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, Dr. Goldner, I, I want to respect your time. I, I have a couple more questions and, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. Sure what are your, what are your thoughts on legalized marijuana? It's been about a year and a half now in Canada. You guys, it's legal now in Canada. Cross country. Yeah, I think that I think that that's I think that's up the right track. I mean, when you look at um, actual issues and mortality, there's worse mortality from cigarettes and alcohol. Uh, so I don't really have an issue with it uh, in terms of that. I think that especially in terms of decriminalizing it, so that we don't fill up our prison system with people who have who have been using marijuana. I think that that would be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we haven't really seen any increase. In, in health problems related to it. So, yeah, I, I, it's not something that I personally uh, use or want to use, but I don't have a problem with people using it in general. As long as it's, you know, you have to be careful because just like with alcohol, what I found is people who use it recreationally, maybe on the weekends, they tend to be pretty productive, have normal lives. But the people who are using it daily do have some major problems, which is true with alcohol and cigarettes and everything else as well. Sure. Uh, but what we have found is it does reprogram the brain and it decreases something called your novelty index, which means that people who are using marijuana on a daily basis actually have a decreased ability to think things are novel and cool without being high. So life without marijuana becomes really boring. And to me, that's a nightmare. Hmm. Uh, I have a very high novelty index, and I think it's an important thing to have to be able to get excited about the little things every day. So as long as people are using it, you know, just recreationally on the weekends or so, that seems to be fine. But in terms of daily use, that usually indicates another problem. They're trying to mask issues with depression and anxiety. They do have dependency issues, and I think that does need to be dealt with. But dealt with through uh, the right medical care and, and, and therapy, not dealt with through prison systems. Right, right, totally. And the last one, this is an oddball question. You've probably never been asked this. Well, maybe. Do you, okay. Do you think that aliens have visited earth or even maybe live among us? It's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't have any sense that I've met an alien, although sometimes people think I am an alien (laughs) (laughs) because of how I live my life. Mm. Um, But I I do believe that they most likely do exist. I think that what we've seen on our own planet is that life is the default. Every part of the earth we've ever discovered, whether it's uh, a super hot sea vent or, you know, anywhere in the ocean, anywhere on this planet, whether it's wet or dry, there is some kind of life by default. So, and no matter what's happened to us, whether it's meteors hitting us and changes in our climate, there's always life that either forms or survives. So if that's true here on our planet, it's likely a rule that's true throughout the universe. So I think that most likely there are aliens, although they might not look anything like us. It might be bacteria. Sure. You know, it might be something completely unlike us, unlike Star Trek, where all of them are humanoid and they just have different heads. Uh, <laughs> most likely, mm-hmm. they don't look anything like us because they'd have to adapt to their own climate. So I don't know how someone from any other planet would be able to survive on ours unless they had the similar kind of planet. But I definitely think life is the default out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time again for uh, for us here in Vancouver. Um, you're easy to find online. You're at Vegan Medical Doc on Twitter and at Goodbye Lupus on Instagram. Instagram and Facebook is Goodbye Lupus on YouTube. It's Goodbye Lupus. Uh, yeah, GoodbyeLupus.com. I'm kind of everywhere, and my, that's my hope to be everywhere. But right. this was definitely the most fun interview I've ever done. Talking <laughs> <laughs> about superheroes and aliens and, and sci-fi rock and roll. This has been awesome. Right. Well, thank you again for uh, for jumping on the Toddcast here in Vancouver, uh, Dr. Goldner. And I guess we'll see you online. The Toddcast Podcast on ToddHancock.ca.